Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, your host for the Beyond Speaking podcast. And today we have on Jonna Mendez. Uh, right now we're in the first half of 2020. Uh, we're in a time of a lot of uncertainty. The stakes are high. There's a lot of conflicting information coming at people. Danger seems to lurk around every corner. Uh, people are on high alert. So I thought there was no better person to have on right now than Jonna Mendez. She's a former CIA chief of disguise and author of several books, including Moscow Rules. So Jonna, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. So you worked for the CIA for 27 years. Um, and for those watching who don't know, uh, your husband was Tony Mendez, Antonio Mendez, who's played by Ben Affleck in the amazing movie Argo, one of my favorites. Um, you served your country all over the world, including Moscow during the Cold War. And from that came out uh, your book, uh, The Moscow Rules. And those rules right now, I think, are a really good playbook uh, and have some really good guidelines on how to react and how to lead and how to operate in a time when there is a whole lot of uncertainty going on like we're in right now. So if you could maybe lay out a kind of the general framework or maybe the idea behind the Moscow rules and where those came from. Well, first of all, we didn't write the Moscow rules. We didn't invent them. Uh, what Tony and I did is write them down. They've been floating around forever. Mm -hmm. People that, that would serve tours of duty uh, with the CIA in Moscow, they would very quickly learn these rules. These are the, these are the strategies and the tactics of doing your work in the most difficult place in the world for a CIA officer to operate. So they're not narrow and specific. They're really quite broad, but they're giving you, uh, they're like signposts along the road. They, they give you some guidance. They tell you when to stop. They tell you when to turn. They tell you how to conduct yourself. Uh, the problem in Moscow, the reason we have Moscow rules, I mean, we don't have Paris rules. <laughs> we don't have Rome rules. Moscow was just uniquely difficult for us to work in. Um, it wasn't for everyone. The, the, CIA, the CIA was up against the KGB. It was like a mano a mano. Uh, they were behind us, in front of us. They were in the walls. They were sitting next to us at our embassy. If you were walking down the street, they were stalking behind you. You could not work. And that was their whole point. They didn't want you to work. Mm -hmm. We were there to do a job, and they were there to keep us from doing the job. Uh, we still had to figure out ways to get around them or bypass them, or and that's what the Moscow rules were, uh, telling you broadly how to manage yourself on the streets of Moscow. And where did you kind of come into play with all of this? Tony always had a running list. Uh, he, he just, as he thought of them, he would, he would write them down. Uh, and we kept that list in the office because we were the Office of Technical Service at CIA. Mm -hmm. That's the technical, the technical arm of the agency. It, it, uh, it's not the only technical arm. There, there's a satellite section of the agency that's enormous. Mm -hmm. But for feet on the ground, espionage officers, we were the Q. We, we almost, you'd think we were modeled after Q. <laughs> we did we did all the audio bugs. We did bugs in things you'd never dream would be bugs. Mm -hmm. Think of a boulder on a beach with a bug in it. I wow. think a, a tree branch with a bug in it. And of course we could put them in, in, in any any we had third story guys that could get in anywhere and put them in. 
Um, we did disguises. We did uh, false documents. Mm-hmm. Did all kinds of forensics. We did uh, uh, low light level video. We actually invented it. Really? We could the, the photo section uh, uh, of CIA, which is where I began. We had tiny, tiny cameras, film cameras, and fountain pens and lipsticks and big lighters and. When I left, I think we were going to put one in a Pez, one of those Pez. <laughs> <laughs> they could be in anything. We were the gadget people. But uh, one of the differences between the, the, the Ian Fleming version and, and our own, um, we always went with James. We'd give him the equipment. We'd find out what he needed, give him the equipment. And we would accompany him because we knew that he was going to wreck it somehow. He's going to lose it. He's going to break it. Is something would go wrong. Uh, that was one of our rules that Murphy, you know, Murphy is always there. You have to always be ready to, to um, plaster over the thing that just, that just broke. Uh, and so the job wasn't a job working um, in a lab somewhere. The job was going all over the world. That's what we did. It was a traveling, traveling job. It was amazing. It was fun. What was your favorite part of it? I started out uh, in photography. I went into the CIA as a secretary. Mm-hmm. And the only way I got out of that was uh, my interest in photography and my ability with cameras. So I did clandestine photography for some years, for maybe 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, traveled the world, taught people how to use various cameras to collect intelligence for us and get, and get it to us. Um, and then I, I, did a, I did a reverse 180 and I went into disguise. I did that because I had gone to a part of the world that I just fell in love with and I wanted an assignment there. But there was no photo operations officer job there for me. There was a disguise officer coming up in two years. So I said, make me a disguise officer. And they did. (laughs) I got my wish. What makes someone a good officer? Wow. Well, a lot of people ask that. A lot of young people today want to know, what are they looking for? I mean, mm-hmm. what, what, how can I make myself valuable? What do they want from me? Uh, we want all the things that any, any office of any big corporation wants when they're hiring. You want young, smart, technically capable. You want, uh, then, then we start going off in another direction. We'd love it if you had languages. We'd love it if you had traveled the world and kind of knew your way around. We'd love it if you'd already had a job in industry. Had a, had a real taste of a career before you came to us. We used to love it if you had been in the military. That's not so much anymore, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond all of that, there's a, there's a working in our part of it, working in OTS, we wanted a degreed um, chemists, physicists, engineers, all kinds of technical people who were on the cutting edge of whatever their specialty was. Mm-hmm. But mostly when people ask that question, they want to know about the DO, about the Directorate of Operations, about those case officers. Mm-hmm. They want to know, how do you get to be one of those? That's the job everybody wants. And that's a hard job. That, those, are, those are big shoes and it's hard to fill. We were always looking for these kind of type A personalities, larger than life personalities. The kind of person you'd meet uh, at a bar or at a friend's house and you instantly want to be their buddy. I mean, there are people that are charismatic like that. Mm-hmm. We wanted that charisma. And you know, that's one of the things you can't teach. You have to find it. 
uh, they bring it to you. You can't go out. And, we can teach languages. We can teach uh, area familiarity. We can teach everything. We can't teach that that personality type. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need people who are discreet. We need people who are problem solvers. The list it just goes on and on and on. But the thing is that once we find that person, imagine that person mm-hmm. is probably the president of his high school class, or she was. Then we say, okay, we'll hire you, but we're going to stuff you in this box where you can never tell anybody what you do. And if you almost saved the world last Tuesday, no one could know. There's no bragging. There's no pats on the back. And a lot of people, when they retire, keep their cover. And so no one ever knows. Really? And a whole, a whole group of them just take a hard right and say, well, thank you. You know, it was great talking to you. That's a really, <laughs> that's a, that's a big ask. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I found really interesting in one of your articles you talked about, and so a lot of people listening, watching right now are event planners. And so, and you mentioned that a lot of these things will happen at trade shows. Is that every trade show? Is it only ones that are, you know, aerospace and military or or where do these things happen? We were, um, the way intelligence collection works, it's not like willy nilly. It comes out from Washington it goes overseas to CIA's stations and bases where we are. Uh, they say we need information about whatever it is. Say it's a technology, a new emerging technology. We need information about that. Our officers have to figure out where do you find that? Who has that information? Is it is it in a company? Is it a person? Who has the knowledge? And then we have to access the knowledge. A lot of times. That will end up uh, a group of like people meeting at a trade show, for instance. And so you end up at the trade show looking for, looking for someone who has access to the information that you, that you want. And then you have to figure out how to, how to get them to part with it <laughs> willingly mm-hmm. uh, over, over, uh, over a long term. This is not an easy job. As a matter of fact, I was just always in awe of our case officers that could talk people into this. I used to think, what would, what would it take for someone to come up to me anywhere and say, you know, you know, you know so-and-so, right? And you used to work on that project, right? Well, I'm really, I'm so interested in that project and I wonder if you could help me. Could you get some, you know? And I'd say, get, get the hell out of here. <laughs> I mean, what would it take to get you to betray your country? Mm-hmm. That's what those, those larger-than-life guys, that's what the job is, to talk, to, 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 to get people to do that. And they have enormous success doing it. It's always amazing. One of the things I really like about what you do, and I think really applies well to, um, to uh, you know, the corporate world right now, or at any time, really, is just the ability to innovate, to experiment, to uh, you know, think outside the box, and uh, uh, what are some of the ways or what, how is that process set up that you are able to, to innovate in such difficult circumstances? That's the job. Very often, that is the job. Um, in, in this office that I was in, the Office of Technical Service, our case officer colleagues would come and they'd say, I've got, I've got this operation. What I need, what I need is a black box like this at that frequency. And it would, you know, 
And, and it would be very often something that didn't even exist in technology, what they wanted. Mm-hmm. But if they could convince us that, that that would solve their problem, we would set about inventing it. We did that over and over. We did that over and over. We were, for so many years, ahead of the commercial technology. We were things like bubble memories, things like, like these ultra small, tiny, hugely powerful batteries. We needed them to put into our audio bugs. Because once you get in to Putin's conference room and you've got this wood block with rows of little batteries and you put it up under his conference table, you will never get back in to change batteries. That's only going to last as long as the batteries. Mm-hmm. We were always trying to buy more, buy more time. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, um, um, I think I mentioned in the book, we had one man uh, named George who spent his career well, he's the front end of his career, a big part of it, working on batteries. And, and uh, he was a genius. He, he, he looked a little crazy. He was a wonderful man. But I didn't know until some years ago, a few years ago, that he was part of the team that saved the Hubble. Really? <laughs> he was our battery guy. Uh-huh. And the Hubble was evidently having a power problem out there in space. And George was, you know, one of the people on the team. At CIA, they have named a school after George Methley, the George Methley Directorate of Science and Technology, because of his innovations, his abilities. It was amazing. So innovation was our was our middle name, and desperation was the thing that drove us forward. One of the things a lot of people talk about is, is borrowing from other industries in order to be more creative, to be more successful. And that's something that you and your group did really well with magic and Hollywood. Obviously, a lot of people know Argo, but how did that uh, come about? And was that a regular thing or is that just once in a while or, or how did that come about? Well, <clears throat> with the magic part, uh, it was Tony Mendez. Um, with a lot of things back in the day, it was Tony Mendez. Tony went into CIA as an artist. That's a very funny uh, uh, career <laughs> track to take you into the field of espionage. And he couldn't figure out why they were looking for an artist. Well, they weren't actually looking for an artist. They were looking for a forger or counterfeiter. And he was very good at it. Uh, but there he ended up plopped down in the middle of a group of right-brained thinkers and Tony's thinking with the other side of his brain. He was creative, he was innovative. That magic thing was always on his mind, in the back of his mind, but he, he didn't apply it to work until we got to Moscow. Mm-hmm. And he thought to himself, you know, this deception and illusion business is so interesting on the stage. It had always fascinated him. He said, but why couldn't we use those tools here in Moscow? Well, we could. I mean, if they can walk an elephant out onto a stage, <laughs> open, open a big empty box. Yes, it's empty. Put the elephant in the box, close the door, talk for 30 seconds, open the door. The elephant's gone. I mean, you know, the elephant's not gone. So you're sitting there squirming in the audience thinking, where is the elephant? (laughs) No trap door is big enough to lower. I mean, where is it? Um, He loved that stuff. And and in, in the end, we started using those ideas of deception and illusion in Moscow. 
and the KGB never knew what hit them. They never knew we did it. I mean, that was the beauty. They couldn't get mad at you. They couldn't bumper lock you because they didn't know that the person in the car in front of them wasn't you anymore. You had stepped out and, and maybe this is a pop-up dummy wearing your face. That, that's one solution. Maybe it was another person wearing a mask that looked just like you. That's an, I mean, there was a thousand ways to do it. And if you did it right, they never do. So we always said, it's like robbing the bank every night and they don't even know the money's gone. Hmm. One of the things that you talk about, one of the Moscow rules is never go against your gut. How can that apply? I mean, how did that apply to you? And then how could that apply for businesses today? Well, you know, it, <clears throat> it works different ways. The rule when we're using it, never go against your gut, was, was built around the idea that you need to meet face-to-face with your foreign agent every once in a while. You just must. You got to look them in the eye and tell them, you know, it's so important what they're doing. It, the, the information is really, I mean, you just have to pump them up. You can't just do it all remotely. On the other hand, you can't lead the KGB to them. K- KGB didn't want us. They wanted those people working for us. Mm-hmm. They wanted to arrest them and they would execute them. And they executed a number of them over the years. Mm-hmm. I think the average life was like 18 months working for us. Wow. So the idea of don't go against your gut means that if you're going to that meeting, that face-to-face meeting, and you just sense that something's a little bit off and you can't even, you don't have to even know what it is. You can just say, this is, something's wrong here. I'm not going to go. You would say, you would abort, abort the meeting. That was almost policy. Abort the meeting. If your gut says this is a no-go, then don't go. And there, you know, there's no explanations. That's a little hard to, to carry that into a business environment where you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to bring this package together. You, but what we were always talking about with the gut is, is kind of considering it as one half of the pattern and, and analysis as the other. They are in competition. They're almost in war with each other. Your gut feeling and the analytic approach to whatever it is you're doing. But at the end of the day, your gut, I think, wins because your gut is like, it's like body armor. <laughs> it's all your visceral parts of you saying, no, we shouldn't do this. You can apply it to, to almost any situation that you might be in. But you usually don't go down the wrong road if you're listening to your intuition and to your gut. Hmm. 